Welcome to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Susie Pritchett is the director of the Drake Legal Clinic at Drake Law School. Her areas of expertise include immigration law and family law. We spent time discussing the current state of immigration in our country, the reasons that make immigration law incredibly complex, as well as Director Pritchett's paper about U-Visas, which act as a mechanism to provide protection to unauthorized immigrants who are victims of crime. It is not necessary that you read the paper to listen to the podcast, but if you're interested, it is linked below. If you find this interview interesting, please subscribe and share with a friend. It really does help. And now, to the interview. Okay, so I'd like to have you start a little bit by talking about the legal clinic and its function here with the law school. Sure. So the legal clinic is part of our experiential learning curriculum here at Drake, and experiential learning really encompasses a number of things. Clinic is a big piece of that, but it's also um, any type of experience that gives students hands-on learning opportunities prior to graduation. So we have a number of internships here at Drake where we send students out into um, field placements with prosecutors' offices and governmental agencies with nonprofits around around Des Moines and beyond. Um, We also have some courses at the law school that teach students real trial skills, so in this kind of a simulated environment. Um, So the clinics are a piece of experiential learning, which is something we pride ourselves here at Drake on sending students out into the world knowing how to practice. The clinics are like a medical residency, but for law students. So students in their second semester of their second year law school and third year law students get to come and enroll in the clinic, and they basically take clinic like a course. They get credit for clinic, but instead of sitting in a classroom and listening to lecture and taking notes and taking the final exam, they get to work on live cases throughout the course of their um, time here. And we have five different clinics, each supervised by a faculty member who's also a licensed attorney. So we have a general civil practice clinic where students are undertaking a lot of cases in the area of family law, so divorce and custody issues, some guardianship. They'll also do some landlord-tenant issues as they arise. Um, We have a criminal defense clinic where students are working on um, cases for indigent criminal defendants who've been charged with crimes here in state court in Iowa. We have an elder law clinic where students are helping people over 60 with a number of issues, um, particularly issues related to um, estates, wills, trusts, um, also some guardianships take place in that clinic. We have an entrepreneurial clinic, which represents largely small businesses and nonprofit organizations and helps um, startup companies think about, you know, what is the entity that would best serve them for what the goals of the company are or helping a nonprofit draft some bylaws to help with um, entity governance and that sort of thing. And then last but not least, we have our children's rights clinic where students are working in children in need of assistance proceedings in state court. So where children themselves have um, potentially been removed from their family or involved with the state or there's been um, a filing of a termination of parental rights. Also some children who have been involved in juvenile delinquency proceedings are being represented by, um, and, and parents are being represented by students in that clinic. So we hope students can come here to the clinic and find something that they're interested in. Um, You know, we have a lot of different substantive areas to choose from, but the goal here is really that 
students while they're in clinic get a core set of skills that allow them to hit the ground running. So they're working on live cases, they're going to court, they're drafting um, motions, they're filing things with the court, they're appearing in trials, really doing almost everything um, an entry-level attorney would do, but they have the benefit of a supervising faculty member here that's helping them to learn and reflect on their lawyering skills so that when they leave Drake, they you know, really have a solid foundation to go from. Right. And how long have you been in the position of director of the legal clinic? So I came here in July of 2018, so not even quite a year yet. It's my first year in this position. I was teaching and running a clinic at the University of Wyoming prior to coming to Drake, but I'm an Iowa native and loved the opportunity to come back here and to be involved in the legal community that I feel really connected to having grown up here in Iowa. Right. And what created your interest in legal clinics and working with them? So I went to law school at the University of Iowa just down the road and you know like a lot of law students spent my first year of law school wondering if I had made a horrible mistake. (laughs) I um, prior to law school I was living abroad and I was working for an international human rights organization and I was getting to do a lot of really interesting um, policy work with women's grassroots women's rights organizations all around the world and you know there was there was part of me that really was craving the skill set that you get from going to law school, right? Really right. critical analytical thinking skills and and knowing that edge you get from thinking like a lawyer. So I made the decision to go back to law school, but my first year of law school um, really reflected none of the interests that I thought I wanted to pursue, right? Property law was just pretty painful for me, civil (laughs) procedure, all of these subjects that failed to really reflect my passion in the area of international human rights. And then my second year of law school, I had the opportunity to enroll in a clinic at the University of Iowa. And um, I was in an immigration clinic there and got to represent a um, asylum seeker from the Democratic Republic of Congo and just had the most kind of transformative experience when I realized that this was why I came to law school, right? And had the opportunity to apply international law in a domestic setting and actually change this individual's life. And so throughout, I represented him um, with my faculty supervisor at Iowa throughout the course of my law school career. And at the very end, he was granted asylum and was able to bring his family over from the Congo um, where they had been living in danger and in hiding from um, the government who was trying to persecute them and they came to my graduation from law school and you know to this day I, I stayed in contact they're now U.S. citizens they've all naturalized so um, I just was so grateful for my clinical experience and thought that you know it is the perfect mix of um, being in a learning environment where you, you are free to make mistakes but mm-hmm. you know some really deep, meaningful learning can occur. But then we also, and and that's something I think I neglected in my overview of what the clinic is here at Drake, we also provide really meaningful legal services to people in the community for free. And almost everybody that we serve here would be unable to afford to hire a private attorney and would potentially go without representation. So I always describe clinic as a win-win. It's a win for students who get to to have this rich, meaningful learning experience, and it's a win for the community because we're able to meet um, a large segment of the unmet legal need here in, here in our backyard. Right. Yeah. About what percentage of students are part of the clinic at some point in their life? That's that's a 
Interesting question. Um, so all students who graduate from Drake have to have completed at least six credits of experiential learning. So that yeah. could mean they had um, six credits of an internship or they could have gotten those credits through an internship and enrolling in the clinic and perhaps doing a simulation course in the law school. But I would say because we have so many clinics and it's really one of the strengths of the law school is mm -hmm. our clinical program that at least half but it's probably even higher than that. Okay. So so the better part of each graduating class will have come through our clinics here. Right. And talk back to immigration law a little yeah. bit. What are some of the uh, common cases that you see in immigration law? So, you know, there's really kind of two sides of immigration practice. Um, one is more uh, paper-based where individuals, non-citizens, are filing applications to the U.S. Immigration Agency, and it's almost all entirely done through paper. Um, there may be an administrative interview, but it's not an adversarial setting, it's not in a court setting, um, and th those are called kind of affirmative immigration cases. Okay. So those cases have a lot of learning opportunity for students, and, you know, a typical um, type of administrative or affirmative case is an application for naturalization or an application for a green card because a non-U.S. citizen marries a U.S. citizen and they want to get their green card through that marriage. Those are some of the more kind of standard um, affirmative applications that get filed. And then the other side of it are cases in removal proceedings where a non-citizen is being threatened with deportation and they're appearing in front of an immigration judge and it's an adversarial hearing between the U.S. Department of Homeland Security who is, you know, asserting that this person should be deported or removed from the United States and the non-citizen who may or may not have an attorney. And so um, in, in the immigration clinic I ran at Wyoming, we did both sides of that, but I would say, you know, students really get their full-on trial experience by doing the um, deportation hearings where they right. get to show up and present facts and do direct and cross-examination, um, make opening and closing statements in really life-or-death cases. Right. On the topic of deportation, mm -hmm. obviously the last couple of years, we heard a lot about that from politicians. Yeah. And talking about deporting large numbers mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. I assume that that deportation process, those hearings would have to take place for in every single case. So there's there's kind of there's variations depending on somebody's immigration history. So somebody who's already been ordered deported and either was um, either was ordered deported and never left, or maybe they left and found their way back into the United okay. States, usually clandestinely, right, right. without authorization. Um, they are entitled to less due process because technically they've already had their day in court. Right. And in those cases, those their prior order of deportation will just be reinstated so mm -hmm. that they won't get another hearing. But for the most part, um, absent you know some exceptions, most people who are being threatened with deportation do get a hearing in front of an immigration judge. Here in Des Moines and in Iowa, all of our cases go before an immigration court that's located in Omaha, Nebraska. There's not an immigration court in every state, so okay. our closest immigration court is in Omaha. And, um, you know, the person can go before the judge and, you know, 
either assert that they are not in a category of somebody who is deportable from the United States, or if they are in a category of somebody who's deportable, they, there are certain affirmative type defenses that you can say, like, yes, I'm deportable, but please let me stay because. And one of those defenses is because I would like to apply for asylum, okay. because I may be persecuted in my country of origin. Right. So that's, um, that's where asylum often comes in, although there's other pathways to asking for asylum as well. Right. Okay. And now I have some questions about the paper. Yeah, uh, sure. I'll have that linked below for listeners yeah. who want to check it out. Uh, but it talks a little about the U visa. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that concept? Yeah. So the U visa um, is a visa that's available to individuals who have been victims of crime in the United States. And the Congress you know, created the U visa because there was this recognition that people living in the United States without immigration status may be afraid to reach out to law enforcement if they had been the victim of crime because they were afraid that reaching out to law enforcement would result in their own deportation. So, you know, police forces around the United States noted that there was kind of these um, shady underworlds of undocumented people who were just really, really vulnerable to being victimized because people knew they wouldn't report to the police. And so the U visa was an effort to get some of these people to start cooperating with law enforcement to report crime to the police. And in exchange for their helpfulness in reporting crime, they would be given um, a four-year visa to have legal status here in the United States. And so the way it works is that if somebody... um, you know, is either undocumented or has maybe overstayed their visa or uh, has another type of visa that's about to run out and they are unfortunately the victim of crime, they need to be helpful to law enforcement so they um, can't refuse to testify, they can't, um, you know, recant or, you know, somehow frustrate the prosecution's case. But if, if they are helpful, um, the prosecutor or the police or even the judge can sign a certificate that says, yes, this person was helpful. And that person can then take that certificate and go to the U.S. immigration agency and say, because I was helpful in the prosecution of this crime, please grant me a U visa. Um, There are a couple of limiting factors on that. One is that there's only a... um, a certain list of crimes for which somebody is eligible. So generally, um, you know, if you get pickpocketed on the street, that's not going to qualify you you for a U visa, but they're they're more serious crimes, usually assault, kidnapping. Um, The U visa came about because of the Violence Against Women Act, so there are a lot of crimes that are associated with gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. Um, But if somebody is successful in getting a prosecutor or a a police officer or a judge to sign the certificate saying they were helpful, that person can then apply to the U.S. government for this visa, which will give them immigration status for four years. After three years, they can apply for a green card, which puts them on a path toward citizenship. Um, It's a very forgiving visa meaning that if somebody has a very irregular immigration history, maybe has even been ordered deported before, it will sort of forgive or waive okay. those um, immigration violations. It waives many criminal violations. So it, if somebody finds himself in the unfortunate circumstance of being um, the victim of a crime, it can also be a blessing in disguise because it might open up an immigration pathway for them that was otherwise unavailable. Right. And it mentions, the paper talks a little bit about uh, the rights illegal immigrants have mm-hmm. in the justice system. Yeah. Could you go through that, what those rights are a little bit? So, um, you know, everybody, 
regardless of someone's immigration status, certain constitutional protections apply to everyone, right? Merely by physically being present here in the United States. And a number of those um, protections apply in, you know, the criminal justice process, right? So my paper is interested in thinking about the, the situation that arises when somebody is the recipient of a U visa and they're called to testify in the underlying criminal case in which they were the victim, right? right? And that seems quite normal, right? Mm -hmm. Usually you think about a, a criminal case going to trial, the victim gets up and testifies and says, you know, this is what happens when I was assaulted on this day and that day. The sort of the glitch, however, happens when um, the defense attorney, you know, rightfully so, wants to then raise the issue of the victim's immigration status because there is the potential that somebody only reported a crime or fabricated a crime to put themselves on this pathway to the U visa, right? right? And so the, the defense attorney might want to bring up the fact that a U visa is at issue here and that's evidence of bias or propensity to, to fabricate the crime. Um, and so I, I was looking at this and saying, well, hold on for a second. To what extent is somebody, is a victim's immigration status relevant? Is it prejudicial, more prejudicial than probative, which is kind of a basic weighing factor that happens in all evidentiary determinations? Um, we we want to make sure we don't trounce on the criminal defendant's rights, right, by being able to present information that's relevant to their his or her case, um, confront adverse witnesses. And so in thinking through this scenario, it, it triggered a lot of thoughts for me about um, women who have been the victims of rape and other other um, gender-based crimes in that context, and, and how has the justice system dealt with really highly prejudicial issues in that instance, in the way that immigration is a highly prejudicial issue, right? Like, you can't walk outside and ask somebody what they think about immigration, and almost everyone's going to have, like, wildly varying opinions on one side or the other. It's not sort of this neutral, eh, issue. <laughs> So I said in the in the the rape context, there's something called the rape shield law that's been adopted um, almost wholeheartedly in in federal and state courts across the country, which says that a woman's sexual history cannot come in as evidence um, in the in the trial against her perpetrator on that you know on that specific charge. Like a woman's sexual history, what does that have to do with whether or not she was raped on this date and time on this incident, right? And the idea is we shouldn't be judging women um, using their sexual history to talk about the, you know what happened in one specific mm -hmm. instance. That would be very prejudicial and um, outside the realm of what's relevant for that crime. So I said there's a lot about a person's immigration history that is equally as irrelevant in this sort of U visa context that we should not allow in to for a jury to hear, right? How somebody crossed the border. Right. Does that really is does that really tell us anything about whether or not this person was the victim of a crime, about whether or not this crime occurred, whether or not somebody's worked without a social security number or worked, you know, with that with with documents that are not theirs. So I kind of marched through all the different um, pieces about an immigration uh, a non-citizen's immigration history that potentially should be kept out in um, 
from an evidentiary standpoint to avoid these really prejudicial pieces of information coming in. Uh, I take as my baseline a case that we actually, um, students in my clinic at Wyoming actually worked on where um, a woman had been the victim of a crime and she was called to testify. And the defense attorney knew that she was also going to be applying for a U visa. So he then proceeded to, um, you know, ask her about her immigration status, ask her about how she crossed the border, ask her how she'd been working. He subpoenaed her employer. He subpoenaed her um I-9 forms, right, to try and introduce all this evidence about the fact that she's just a lying type of person and she's, you know, crossed the border illegally and this therefore tells us a lot about her character and the jury should believe anything she says. Um, and this particular jury found that very compelling and found the defendant not guilty in that case, even though there was a video recording of the defendant basically committing the crime. Um, and, and, you know, really, I think it was because it was so highly prejudicial, all that information that came in, not to mention the fact that the victim was entirely traumatized by the process. I mean, this was a small town. Her entire immigration history had been leaked. She immediately lost her job, of course, because her employer had been subpoenaed to testify and they hadn't known that she didn't have immigration status. So it brought out all these issues and, and rather than you know, helping her out of the shadows and putting her on a pathway toward normal immigration status, she was really traumatized by the entire process. So the paper looks at you know, makes a proposal for ways to keep some of this really highly prejudicial immigration um, information out of a trial when there's a U visa applicant who takes the stand as a witness in, in the underlying criminal case. Right, right. As far as knowing their rights in the justice mm -hmm. system, constitutional mm -hmm. rights, how many uh, illegal immigrants do you think are even aware that they have these rights? I mean, it's it certainly, it's it certainly, um, I think, an area where communities, there's a lot of potential for education. Um, one, you know, some groups here in Des Moines, I know, uh, go down to the Polk County Jail and conduct kind of know your rights presentations for non-citizens who are detained there because there isn't a basic understanding of what rights pertain and which, which don't, you know, wh where is the line of constitutional protection drawn? And, you know, I think, I think your average person walking around in the street is not entirely right. clear on that. And I think a lot of undocumented people assume that they don't have those protections in place. Um, but it's really important for them to know because even, you know, both in the criminal context, of course they get all of the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment rights that apply to citizens, but then in the immigration context, there are a lot of ways um, that they can assert rights against ICE efforts to put them into deportation proceedings or they can, you know, they don't have to answer certain questions or they don't have to answer the door or allow ICE in without a warrant. And those are certain things that um, I think there there's a gap in knowledge and certainly um, I think people could you know their, their level of fear and uncertainty could be lessened somewhat if th there was more education around those issues. Certainly yeah. Back to the process of obtaining a visa yeah. which you went over a little bit. Mm -hmm. Is that process sufficient or do you think there's ways that can be improved? You know there's critiques of the process because they you know you know detractors say that people just start fabricating crimes because they know it will put them on a pathway to immigration status. I mean, another big problem of the visa program is that people are often reporting um, 
crimes perpetrated by other undocumented people. So that ostensibly then gets that other undocumented person deported because right. almost any criminal history um, is likely to get somebody deported or even if somebody completely lacks immigration status, just being put on the radar, right? Being arrested yeah, yeah. is enough to get them deported because once somebody's arrested, they get booked into the Polk County Jail. Polk County has to run you know, the names and fingerprints of everybody there against the ICE database if it shows that somebody's not in the U.S. lawfully, ICE then puts a hold on them until their criminal case is done, and after their criminal case is done, they're swooped up and taken to immigration court, or if they have an already an outstanding order of deportation, that order gets reinstated and they get put on the flight or the bus back to their country of origin. So um, I think that's a problem in that, you know, in helping some people, other people are potentially put on the radar and deported. There's a question about, well, if they're committing crimes, maybe we should deport them. Um, and that's certainly, you know, that's that's a valid argument and something I think we can all sort of take different sides on. Um, but it, it, the other problem with the U visa program is that there are only 10,000 each year available across the okay. entire country. And so if somebody is eligible, but there are no visas available that year because they've all been used already, they get put in a queue where they just sort of have to wait in line until new visas become available in the subsequent right. fiscal year. And right now, it's so there have been so many people who've qualified for a U visa that the wait is like between seven and nine years right. to actually point. get the visa. Yeah. So um, th there's this critique that, well, people are going to just make up crimes um, to be able to get a U visa, but it seems a bit attenuated to me that somebody would make up a crime for the potential of getting a visa in nine years right. and in the process expose themselves to all the criminal consequences that might flow from false reporting and mm -hmm. fabricating a crime, right? We can't forget that those things themselves are crimes. So um, I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of U visa victims and um, across the board, you know, the clients that I've worked with have been genuine and generally have been victims of crime, most often domestic violence happening within the home. Right. The paper also mentions immigration law being incredibly complex, which we discussed before yeah. we started. What are some of the main factors that make it so complex? So, um, you know, I start each each semester I teach immigration law. I kind of, we, we talk about who has the authority to make immigration law and how have we gotten to where we are, this morass that we're in today. Um, it's some very early uh, Supreme Court cases established this idea that, you know, Congress has plenary power over immigration, meaning that they, you know, are, Congress is the only one who gets to make immigration law, so the president doesn't get to, states don't get to, federal um, legislature gets to make immigration law, and it gets to basically do whatever it wants in the area of immigration law without a lot of judicial oversight, because the court has said, you know, as a sovereign nation, we have to be able to control who comes and who goes. So in making that law, Congress can discriminate on the basis of origin if they want. They can discriminate on the basis of um, gender, which our code does in a number of places. Um, you know, it, it discriminates on the basis of national origin. We, you know, for the longest time gave preferential treatment to Cubans or there's potential places of the immigration code that are carved out for people who've been um, victims of the one child sterilization policy in China, right? So the reason we have this kind of mashed together complicated code is because 
Congress has been piecing it together for years and years and years, and the code reflects the political whims of the day, right? And at the same time, there's no real judicial um, checks mm -hmm. on, on what our immigration code can and can't do. And so we get this very complicated piece of um, the law that has never, you know, there've been, there've been moments in time where there've been major reforms, but um, it's been to bits and pieces and never thinking about our immigration code comprehensively. And so the complexity in part comes from that. The complexity also comes from the fact that, you know, our country has changed a lot. Our economic situation has changed. We've come to rely on immigrant labor in a very different mm -hmm. way than what was originally intended when, when the code um, was drafted. Right. And, you know, there have been different sort of regulatory fixes and attempts at fixing that, but um, almost everybody, you know, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, can agree that what we have isn't necessarily responsive mm -hmm. either to American, the American economy, but also to, you know, issues of human rights, family unity, um, and just global migration flows and, and, and what's happening in our world today. So that's kind of... A, the background to how it is so complex, right. um, then there's the actual functioning of our immigration system where, you know, to get a, a hearing in immigration court takes, you know, five or six years sometimes wow. because there's so many cases that are backlogged. Right. We had just had a major government shutdown that didn't help. Um, and, you know, cases are really complicated. There aren't enough immigration judges. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the code's very complicated, but then you have the actual application of the law, and that's not functioning very well either. So right. you combine those two pieces and you sort of have the perfect storm right. with a Congress that can't agree on anything, right. which is why we see the executive. Um, acting, you know, in all sorts of interesting ways. I mean, we had Obama passing DACA, which was his response to Congress being unable to get on the same page and pass the DREAM Act. But then we had, you know, we've had President Trump using his executive powers to do a number of things, the travel ban, um, thinking about um, changing enforcement priorities, you know, doing what he can as um, within within his executive authority because Congress itself isn't moving anything forward. Right. Uh, one question I like to ask a lot in these yeah. podcasts is when someone is knowledgeable in an area that mm -hmm. is discussed a lot in the media yeah. <laughs> by politicians yep. to get their general idea how things they respond to, whereas the things that are accurate from politicians oh, and yeah. media and then things that you hear about immigration, you're just, that's not even close. Right. I mean, not to get political on your podcast, honest, <laughs> but, you know, there is no evidence that we have an emergency at the border right now. There just simply is no evidence of that, that, you know, is really not based on fact and what is actually happening there. Um, so one thing I really encourage my students to do, in so much of immigration um, discourse in, in popular media isn't based on facts and, you know, the law partially is because the law is really hard to understand, but, um, you know, people, people sort of lose sight of, um, the reality and you know the people who are living next door to us which you can't even here in Des Moines I, I sit here and look out my window and I am just amazed at the diversity of people walking down the street right so um 
you know, to, to make immigration about this mysterious other who is trying to, you know, cross our borders illegally and smuggle drugs and commit crime, well, the evidence just does not bear that out. And so um, it is frustrating to hear so many people um, taking things at face value that really have no basis in what what is actually happening on the ground. Right. For listeners who want to learn more about immigration yeah. and on the, especially on the legal side if there's things they're trying to understand they hear on the mm-hmm. news mm-hmm. Uh, what are some good sources for them to look at so um New York Times Daily Podcast has been doing some really, really excellent pieces on immigration where they've been at the border and interviewing people at the border. And so if somebody's interested in in hearing from a sheriff who works down in Arizona or, um, you know, somebody who's working in uh, Border Patrol, I think just having those voices be part of the conversation is really important. Um, I recommend um, the... um, Immigrant, oh gosh, I'm, there's so many acronyms. Um, Penn State's law school has an immigration clinic that they've put together a resource page that's been really, really excellently updated with respect to DACA, what's going on with DACA, which is, you know, kind of always in the news, the travel ban, which is another big one, and then um, litigation around some of the family separation issues, which is sort of the the trifecta of big (laughs) issues at the moment. Um, But I'm sure, you know, there's going to be more to come with the wall and uh, it, I would, I would, you know, because there's so much in the news right now, I would stick to very, you know, highly regarded news right. sources, but that's always in the eye of the beholder, right? right. Yes, certainly. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. You can learn more about Director Pritchett's work by visiting the link in the description below. Thank you for listening.